1: Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down.
3: This is Reasons to be Cheerful, with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello!
4: Enjoying a quaver there, are you? You caught me crunching on a quaver. I have to say, there's something very satisfying about the sound of a crunch of a quaver. I love quavers. Yeah. Don't you? Yeah, maybe they'll send us a box now you've said mm. that. One. Exactly. <laughs> Shameless. <laughs> um, so uh, we, we should just say straight away that we are recording this before we've got any idea what is going on. I mean, I know we say this quite often because there could be a couple of days between us recording it and yeah. the episode coming out, but this week especially. Yeah. We've got no idea what has gone on with this deal. Um, we don't even know if you're working Saturday or not this week. We think we are, I think. So I, I know that this is a very serious subject and the the future of the country is at stake and all that but have you thought about parkrun? you'll do it for me won't you you'll be the ringer you're gonna send me as a proxy yeah i think i would really damage your personal best average if i went and did your parkrun for you this week have you ever had a saturday job when you were at school did you have a saturday job never had a paper round really what about you uh worked in a chippy for two weeks how did it go not well i got fired because i kept dropping too much of the uh, of the food Really? Very cat handed yeah. yeah. The, those... Imagine what I'd have been like. I uh, know, you, you, I mean, you, you and me working in any kind of food preparation, perhaps maybe a make-your-own-sandwich shop, it we, we wouldn't, wouldn't go well for us. Um, we're going to be talking
5: about fake news this week. Yeah, something you know a thing or two about. <laughs> What makes you say that? All that fake news you've been spreading about my make-your-own-sandwich idea. <laughs> I mean, that is just fake news par excellence. You see, this you've is been, a, like, frightening people about hygiene issues. This, this you is know, a, this a, is a that. very
4: Trumpian technique. So fake news is two things, isn't it? I mean, there is this problem with, you know, dissemination of of news that yeah. isn't properly sourced and that is just yeah, intended exactly. to manipulate. And then there are people in powerful positions yeah, that's true. saying things, that anything, any criticism. Yeah
5: anybody has to offer is fake news yeah, and I think that you true. are falling into the trump category though. yeah maybe that's true i'm taking on the expert but this week we are talking about fake news and disinformation obviously it was a major issue back in uh, 2016 but continues to be an issue we'll be exploring how much of a problem it could be in upcoming elections some of the ideas for tackling it we're talking to a social psychologist from cambridge about the psychology of why people believe fake news and he promotes what he calls a pre-bunking uh, which is rather than debunking
4: it's like pre-distribution yeah
5: exactly so i was thinking the same thing and he's created a game to help uh do it uh, then we're talking to an expert in computational propaganda that's algorithms and all that malarkey about the threat of disinformation and the role of tech companies in addressing it and finally this will appeal to you we're speaking to someone from finland mm. uh, about their approach to tackling fake news which a number of other countries are trying to learn from the flying fins. I enjoy a fin. I enjoy the Moomins. Yep, right up my street. Yeah,
4: absolutely. And it's an appropriate week to be talking about fake news because uh, we have a publication has has arrived, and I don't know if it quite falls into the category of fake news. I know that you are alternative and much better parallel <laughs> universe. I'd say <laughs> Ed is obsessed with this. It is called Chaos with Ed. Obsessed me. with it. You are. You mean you just sit there leafing through caricatures of yourself, laughing at them? <laughs> It's, it's difficult. to. I had to take the book away from Ed because it was difficult to get his attention. Yeah, It's called Chaos with Ed Miliband. It's a funny book by a guy called Tom Noble and it, it, it's kind uh, it shows. And it
5: shows, thank goodness, what we avoided as a country.
4: It's Well, it show, shows Ed going about his everyday life since 2015 versus what has been going on in the real news. And we'll be talking to Tom, who is the author of that book. What's your reason to be cheerful? Soreen, Halloween special. They've done halloween special loaves of saurine you're not a saurine fan tell oh, them about the saurine dory malt, malt loaf malt loaf yeah i love a
5: malt loaf is that you and my wife
4: is that right yes
5: she's a massive malt loaf person i mean i just i'm not a malt loaf person at all i just think malt is an underrated
4: flavor full stop i like i like sprinkling things with horlicks just to get a bit of maltiness into them give me a quaver um, over a malt loaf anytime. Oh, imagine a quaver dipped in horlicks Ed. Hmm. no not for you but yeah it's, it's, they've done spooky um halloween edition saurine they've got chocolate and blood orange and toffee apple so i will be availing myself of, some you of like, that. are
5: you are you a regular saurine
4: eater i love a bit just just i just like it simple with a bit of butter on it wow you don't like it it's not a sort of marmite situation i don't, I don't sort of object to it i mean i could live i could live without the fruit in it but you know the multi loaf syrupy loaf oh it's fantastic what about
5: you then so my reason to be cheerful um it's about a long-running uh, saga. Uh, it's, it feels like it's been going on forever. Uh, lots of views on all sides. It's a relief to finally come to an agreement. Uh, and it's about whether our family's going to get a dog. We're not. Oh! Uh, I mean, I think it's the sort of agreement. It's a sort of de facto agreement. It's the out like heads of agreement. Your, t- your children I- are behind this deal. Well, I'll tell you why, because we tried out, we, we we did the best thing, which is we sort of dog-sat. Right. And, it, and we've got a really nice arrangement, which is that we've got Dylan, who is a King Charles Cavalier something or other, who we occasionally dog sit, and he's incredibly nice. Is he a good boy? Yeah, and he's, he's really what nice. What voice, when you speak
4: to Dylan, what voice do you use? Because everyone the, has a different voice when they're speaking to a dog. My normal voice. Uh... Uh, so you're tickling his tummy and you're not good, he's, I didn't a good do, he's a good boy no
5: i didn't do that much of that and i think what justine worked out was that the sort of the dog sort of enthusiasm to sort of output ratio was slightly misaligned in other words you know everybody was in principle enthusiastic about a dog but she was the only one who was actually doing anything with the dog right everybody else was sort of looked the other way <laughs> uh, so so we've got a good arrangement which is we we will be sort of dog sitters I mean, I don't think my children have quite realised that this is a sort of definitive you know, deal.
4: And there's no way they're ever going to hear this. I mean, why would no. they listen to this? Uh, so uh, but I think know. I mean,
5: just the trouble is, if you're out at work during the day, it's not great having a dog, is it?
4: Yeah, but you can get these people. You know, you, you see those people with the I gangs know, of dogs. No,
5: but no, but it's like as if life isn't complicated. People who have very. I mean, pre- he is very sweet, isn't he?
4: He's gorgeous. Look at Dylan. He's such a good boy. I think you would get a lot more satisfaction out of him if you had a special voice for speaking to
5: him. In he is calming and having... nice, to, and, and we took him out to dinner the other night. Uh, not in a restaurant, <laughs> people's house, but and and you know he sort of he sort of behaved more or less okay. Mm. Um, but he did start, he did start sort of barking at between one thirty and two thirty in the morning because we hadn't did, given him proper walkies, so that was a bit <laughs> that, that was that was a bit sort of that. that, that that, that was our fault Because mm. then the next night didn't happen We had him for a weekend you see but, but anyway he is the reason
4: to be Dylan is the reason to be cheerful And there's, there's no chance of reopening this agreement At any point in the future
5: Who knows
3: You're listening to Reasons to be Cheerful With Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd
4: We're going to speak now to Sander van der Linden, who is Assistant Professor of Social Psychology at the University of Cambridge. Uh, Sander, thank you for talking to us. And can can we just start by asking, why do people want to believe fake news? What is going on uh, psychologically with people that were were so drawn to it?
6: Yeah, pleasure to be on the show. Um, I think there's two competing explanations uh personally i don't think they're necessarily competing but i think there's two views in the scientific literature on this and, and the one view is that you know people are bombarded with information and our perception is is very selective so we attend to things that are important to us and we can't filter out everything and our bandwidth mentally is limited and so fake news sort of takes advantage of uh um, of our biases or when I stress you out cognitively, um, you will perform, you know, less well on, on certain tasks that I might give you. And so that's, that's a well-known fact. And so, you know, on one hand, it's true that, you know, when people are bombarded by information and they don 't know what to believe, uh, we might you know rely on the wrong sort of rules of thumb um, and and that 's just a consequence of uh, of people not processing information very carefully because of the way the information environment is structured. The other explanation though is that our perceptions are motivated by our prior beliefs, so for example, this could be political or a certain worldview you have that actually just colors the way that you process uh information i think you know a reference to the x files uh, i want to believe uh, that's often uh, you know a common sort of uh, a sort of metaphor um but to some extent you know that might be what's going on with some political news and that people are just you know strongly drawn uh to a certain piece of evidence or information or news because they already believe it um and want to propagate their beliefs further so i think both explanations are not mutually exclusive um but i think those are the two the sort of two main psychological mechanisms that work here
5: where do you sort of stand on the balance between them, do you think?
6: Yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting question. I mean, we, we've we been uh, trialling some interventions and, and broadly we, we kind of find that, you know, we can move the needle and and help people, you know, spot fake news and become more resistant to it. So what that tells me is that people aren't necessarily fixed. Uh, in their state of mind. So I think I take this one literature that, you know, we're all we're post-truth and, you know, we're all motivated to believe what we want to believe and there's no hope and, you know, there's alternative facts everywhere. Um, I think, you know, there's some of that. Uh, but people are susceptible to reason to some extent. People are flexible um, in the way that they perceive the world, and we can't help people make better uh, judgments when it comes to discerning fake from uh, from real news. That tells us that it's not, you know, it's not deterministic.
5: Can, can I suggest a sort of anecdotal theory, part of which is rather sort of banal, but is part of this that we've gone from a world of gatekeepers who were uh, deeply problematic – but were gatekeepers into a world of Facebook and so on where there are no gatekeepers. So in other words, it's very hard to know what to believe when you see it on Facebook for lots of people. But then secondly, a bit more of an optimistic view, which is if some stuff that is, that is around on social media is sort of debunked, it might lead people to be more sceptical about everything they see on social media, if you see what I mean.
6: Yeah, I think you make a very good point. I think it, it, to some extent it is very much the case that um people are curating their own uh, news feed selection now or it's curated by social media companies and, and there's also problems associated with that. I do think that uh, people are... What we call um, accuracy motivated, so people do have a motivation to have accurate beliefs about the world. Uh, But we easily we're easily distracted, and we fall prey to all sorts of uh, uh, issues on the internet with the way that the new media is structured and the way that information is coming at us. So I do think we can help people. This is not to say that there's not certain people who are deeply motivated to spread misinformation, but I think that's a different sort of discussion.
4: I know you said people are susceptible to reason, um, but what what about this thing, the backfire effect, where actually? With, with some people giving them fact-checking that makes them more entrenched in, in their views?
6: Yeah, so the backfire effect was, was something really uh, prominent, finding that basically if you try to correct something, be, people become uh, even more firm in their, in their prior beliefs. But what the weight of evidence has now shown uh, is that we should be less certain about the prevalence of the backfire effect than we had previously thought. Having said that, I do think there are issues with debunking and fact-checking in terms of how effective it is. And and from our perspective, that's mainly because it comes after the fact. Um, And my concern has been driven partly by this idea of what we call the continued influence of misinformation, which means that if you've been exposed to a conspiracy, a hoax, a myth, something that's false, it's very difficult to correct because now it's lodged in your memory and when you repeat it for people that association becomes stronger in any attempt to, to debunk it um, i should add that i'm not i'm not saying the checks aren't important i think actually they serve a, a very important signaling function that if politicians you know get the idea of just in, you know saying whatever they want to the public that there's some institution that that's actually there and it's going to correct them i think the incentive it disincentivizes uh, uh, this kind of behavior a little bit, so I do think they have an important role, uh, but they're just not as effective uh, perhaps as we'd like them to be
4: well let, let's talk about something to feel positive about. This is something you have created. you describe it as a, a fake news vaccine uh, it's It's a game, it seeks to tackle disinformation strategies can Can you tell us what it is, how it works, why it works?
6: Yeah, absolutely. So this game that we've developed is based on what we call a a vaccination or an inoculation metaphor. And the idea is this, just as with regular vaccines, when you inject a small dose uh, of of a severely weakened strain or a dead strain of a virus, uh, antibodies are triggered in your immune system to help confer resistance against future infection. And it turns out you can do the same with information. If I inject you with a little bit of fake news, a weakened dose, so not so strong that you actually believe it, uh, but a severely weakened dose that allows People to produce mental antibodies um, against fake news when they're later shown the sort of the full-blown version of the uh, of the fake news, uh, and we've later gamified this approach. And the strategy of the game is is rather than trying to sort of vaccinate people against you know specific falsehoods about specific issues. Maybe we can stay clear of specific issues and actually just help people recognize the techniques that underlie the production of most fake news. So things we cover are, you know, polarizing people, um, conspiracy theories, the use of emotions to manipulate you, trolling, discrediting other people. You know, basically, your fake news.
5: Jeff was brilliant at yeah. the game, by the way. Which I mean, just,
6: he was brilliant. Just, He's a- <laughs> just given
5: what you just said. I think says quite a lot.
4: Jeff, so so I played there? it earlier on. My my final screen said, "Please don't tell me everybody gets this." Uh, mission accomplished! Congratulations, you've mastered the art of disinformation and collected a loyal army of nine thousand six hundred sixty-eight followers. High score! This is your. <laughs> yeah, that's certificate... a pretty good
6: score. Is that good? Is it? Yeah, that's a pretty good score. Yeah, yeah. What? So you're, you know, maybe you're a natural.
4: I mean, I could have just made up a high score. That would have been uh, showing my ability yeah, to fake news. True. Yeah. That is true. <laughs>
6: that's right. The metaphor that I they that I often use is, you know, when you go see a, a magic show. Um, the first time you might be duped by a trick because you don't know how it works right then the traditional approach is to educate people so you could say well you know here's here's a fact sheet or here's a drawing of how the trick works uh, but our approach is more it's more like this what if, what if you do the trick yourself what if we give you the experience um, of, of going through the motions and figuring out how to do the trick on your own and this is a much more powerful way for people to learn and truly understand something and hence become more immune to it when it actually happens to you and that's really the 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 sort of the, the key idea behind the game.
4: And, and the way it's set up is before you play the game you, you kind of do a little test, a little bit of research uh, to see how adept you are at spotting uh, tweets and, and bits of social media feeds that might not be reliable and then you do another the test afterwards and I'm, I'm guessing what you've found is the the game really works and people have got a much more sharp eye for this kind of thing after they've played the game
6: yeah that's exactly right so people who give informed consent to participate in scientific research receive this uh, this pre-test and they play the game for about 15 to 20 minutes and then they get the same test and we see how people improve in their ability to detect these techniques so you know some of them are uh, specific to social media for example and, and, and impersonating other people online so you might tweak a twitter handle and and you know people don't actually spot this uh, the first time around that something has been manipulated uh, and they're actually being duped uh, by a false account but you know in the post-test people do uh, catch on or a lot of people uh, in fact, a lot of people do uh, to, to this sort of technique
5: what, what are the other things sander that we can do to combat fake news do you think what's the, what's the sort of basket of things that can be done
6: I think what, what we tried to do initially is to get this idea of what we call pre-bunking. So rather than debunking, uh, pre-bunking on the policy agenda as a new tool um, to be considered in in the sort of misinformation space. Tell us about pre-bunking. Well, for the, the, what we just talked about the the vaccine and the inoculation yeah. metaphor. Just another term for that is pre-bunking, and we we came up with that term um, uh, mainly. Um, in, in opposition to, to, to debunking. So people started sort of differentiating between the two. But largely, to answer your question, what I think we should do is, is have a multi-layered uh, post-truth defense system. And the way that would work is that pre-bunking should be the first thing that we attempt. So before people are exposed to a myth, we preemptively protect them uh, uh, through, you know, the sort of vaccine metaphor. If that doesn't work, uh, we could try real-time fact-checking and rebuttals as a second layer of defense. If that doesn't work, we can still try debunking uh, and then hopefully, you know, by the end of that, you know, multi-layered defense system, uh, th- that's a sufficient sort of, you know, uh, wall of protection to to have a well-informed discussion about politics and evidence and science and society without the disruption of these sort of disinformation campaigns.
5: So we have a thing on the podcast called the Jeffocracy, um, where Jeff is the supreme ruler peddling lots of fake news now uh to just sort of ignore the sort of misinformation parts of the jeffocracy if jeff were to make you the minister for misinformation disinformation no
6: no no no. minister for countering right right not not the minister of truth please but yeah yeah.
5: (laughs) minister for honest and accurate information what's the what's the first thing you would do apart from sort of dismiss get 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 rid of jeff but we'll take that as read
6: (laughs) So so the first thing I would do and I, I I don't mean to sound like a um you know like a broken record but I just think that there's this huge value in a proactive approach especially when it comes to disinformation and misinformation everything we know about how people process information tells us that it's so much more difficult uh to correct things when they've already happened when people have already been exposed to a myth or a falsehood so that would really be my focus drilling down that sort of single point of of being more proactive rather than reactive
4: i think that all sounds good do you see there was no mention of bringing down the jeffocracy you're
5: gonna have a bit of a problem though because you're gonna have a sort of contradiction which is the guy you're appointing as minister for information is going to be trying to inform people better which will run totally counter to your to your wish to spread fake news about the jeffocracy where where is this insurgency
4: coming from uh sander van der linden thank you so much
6: yeah my pleasure
5: we're joined now by samantha bradshaw who is a researcher at the oxford internet institute working on their computational propaganda project samantha thanks so much for joining us
7: thank you for having me
5: so we're obviously talking about fake news lots of people know about fake news tell us about the scale of the threat posed by fake news and disinformation in in uk elections what what's the scale of the threat sort of here would you say
7: So we've certainly been seeing the scale, the scope, and the intensity of disinformation campaigns on social media grow um, over the past couple of years, particularly starting around uh, the Brexit referendum. Uh, That's when we really started to see a lot of uh, really divisive narratives, um, a lot of information that was not factually true being spread um, about the referendum and the campaign. So we see disinformation campaigns um, being uh, used by a variety of actors uh, for political purposes. Um, Some of that is homegrown um, by domestic interest groups, political parties themselves. Um, But some of it is also foreign interference and other um, states who have some kind of geopolitical goal and see social media as this new medium to exert power and influence.
5: Talk to us about the techniques that are used, and 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 how these are facilitated by the business models of the tech companies.
7: Yeah, so social media has a number of characteristics you could say that empower propaganda. One of these characteristics has to do with uh, the the precision that you can now get because of our personal data that uh, platforms collect. Um, And then that data is used to tailor and refine certain uh, messages um, that will already appeal to us based on who we are as individuals. Another thing that's really interesting has to do with automation. Automation uh, often comes in the form of what we call a political bot, which is essentially a fake account. It's an account that um, is scripted. It's a piece of code and it's designed to mimic human behavior. So it might do things like like, share, retweet, uh, comment even on posts.
5: I've heard a lot about these bots. How do you tell a bot from a non-bot? Like on Twitter, for example.
7: It becomes increasingly difficult. Um, before, when there wasn't very much attention being paid to these bots, um, they would you know, very crudely just be liking, sharing, retweeting things like crazy. Like... Operating at a a scale like that no human could actually operate at, uh, liking things like thousands of times, for example. But the platforms have adapted to these kinds of accounts and these kinds of crude automation techniques. So we don't see that happening as much anymore. And the big
4: tech companies, social media companies, how much do you think they genuinely see this? as a problem. Uh, and how much do you think well, they're, they're thinking It's it's been a good source of income for us, but it's also a big PR problem. Let's do the bare minimum.
7: A lot of the responses that we've seen come out of the platform so far really have just scratch the surface and they're really kind of bare minimum responses to addressing the problem. Uh, And the reason for that is because disinformation and fake news is so closely tied to the business model of these companies. Social media platforms are designed to keep us hooked, uh, to keep our attention because the longer that we're on these platforms, the more they can Uh, deliver advertisements to us, which generate revenue. Uh, And so they're constantly trying to keep us engaged by... Um, delivering users information that is highly uh, engaging. And that often has to do with things that are highly emotional, whether that be, you know, like a positive cat meme or, you know, some wonderful story about some animals because, you know, feelings of joy (laughs) can be very powerful emotions, but even more powerful are, are emotions like fear uh, like anger, um, a lot more of these negative emotions. And that's what we see a lot of the disinformation and the fake news playing off of.
4: So given that that's what social media companies are trying to do, they're, they're trying to keep us on there for as long as possible, uh, the, the stirring up of these emotions is a, a, a tool by which they're doing that. To, to some extent, they can't be trusted to self-regulate. So do governments need to be doing more? And if, if so, what does that look like? Because th- these things don't have borders. Does it have to be international cooperation of governments?
7: Government certainly has a role to play, um, I think, you know, with every new communication technology, there's always this really uncomfortable learning period of, um, you know, understanding how exactly, well, first of all, what the extent of the problem is, and then how exactly we can regulate it. And it happened with, you know, newspaper, with radio, TV, and, and now we're just thinking about this in the age of social media again. One of the things that I always advocate for is more procedural accountability From the platforms, procedural accountability is the rules about the rules. Uh, And so how Facebook is determining its policies to take down certain kinds of content, take down certain kinds of accounts, uh, just having more insight into those kinds of processes so that we can start to evaluate whether or not the company is doing enough and where the gaps are. Because right now, everything is very much a black box and there is very, very limited insight uh, into the functioning of, of these platforms.
5: Is part of what's going on here that if you take Britain, we're not allowed to do political advertising on television and so now we've got this whole area which is more important than television where you can do advertising and it's pretty wild west-ish in america political advertising there is political advertising on television but it's relatively regulated i mean i can't help feeling that in both countries we're just sort of we're treating social media as if it's a special case when it's not clear why it should be a special case
7: yeah i think I think that's certainly the case when we're looking at political advertising specifically I think a lot of the digital campaigning laws that we have in place for traditional media have not yet been extended to the digital realm and that's why we're seeing a lot of um, abuse of these kinds of platforms for campaigning or you know not even abuse but you know maybe pushing the boundaries a little bit of uh, compared to some of Some of the more traditional media forms. Um, But I think it's really important to mention here, though, that the advertising part of disinformation is actually just a very small component of the problem. If you look at um, what Russia did in, in the United States elections in, in 2016, uh, they spent about 200,000 US dollars on ads, um, but that only reached a couple million Americans, whereas their organic engagement reached so many more people, and they didn't pay a penny for that content.
4: And can you explain to us what deep deepfakes... are? this is where video is manipulated to make somebody you can make them look like they were some somewhere that they never were like they they said something they never said
7: yeah so uh deep fake technology is you know what um a lot of people are thinking is going to be the next generation of disinformation um and you know we're already seeing more images and and memes and videos being used in these campaigns. And again, part of this actually comes down to, you know, the economics of attention. There's so much information uh, that's being shared online and the platforms want to keep our attention. Uh, And so... There's this kind of natural evolution of moving from uh, the, the disinformation website to these deep fake technologies where uh, someone can be made to look like they're saying something that they've never actually said.
4: Uh, on the podcast, we have a, a utopia. It's called the Jeffocracy with me installed as a benign dictator. I want no disinformation in this in this utopia unless it's coming from me. If, if, if I made you minister for uh, tackling disinformation or minister for information, sounds a bit like chemical Alley, that one, doesn't it? But uh, what, what is the first thing you would do uh, day one to, to tackle this stuff at government level?
7: The first thing... Um, I would do would be to think more about user privacy uh, and data, because that's a large part of the problem. It's how uh, information gets tailored to us through ads, but, you know, also organically based on our interests. And right now, users don't have A lot of control over the kinds of data that social media companies collect about us and so i would start uh there by thinking more about how to put that power back into the hands of the people sounds good um
5: samantha bradshaw it's a really important problem and really important work that you're doing thanks so much for joining us
7: thank you again for having me
5: All right. Speaking to us now from Helsinki, we have
4: Director of Current Affairs and Communications at Finland's Ministry for Foreign Affairs,
5: Vesa Hakkinen. Um, I think you did it better in the rehearsal, actually. The
4: pronunciation. Yeah, you did. um,
5: I put you off your stride, didn't you?
4: Marks out of 10 for my pronunciation, Vesa.
2: That was very, very fine. That was very, very fine. Thank you.
4: That's because the Finns are such polite people. But it's exactly <laughs> yeah. that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> sure. Thank, thank you for talking to us. Um, I want to we'll start by asking you. So in, in Finland, your anti-disinformation campaign it started back in 2014, and I wondered if you could talk to us about why it started, what the origins were, and and why uh, the situation in Finland in particular makes this a, a, a pertinent subject with regards to foreign interference that's
2: a very good question of course we saw something happening in 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 europe and in the world overall 2014 and even a bit earlier uh, but it it was a kind of a sea change for us and and, and as it happened in the neighborhood i'm talking about Russia uh, interfering business of, 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 of Ukraine and inside Ukraine. And, and at the same time, there were, let's say, massive disinformation campaigns, for example, concerning the downing of MH17, the, the Malaysian airliner from, from uh, Holland to, to Malaysia. And, 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 and we, then we realized that we, we need to, let's say, wake up and do something, uh, Actually, we were woken up already uh, straight after the Second World War. In that sense, that we we decided in Finland that we we need something that we called uh, call comprehensive approach to security. And and of course, then we are talking about the safety of the country. And and as we are in a relatively small country, uh, we 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 realized that we we need to. Do things together. So, so this is a long road, uh, but but this actual campaigning uh, against disinformation it happened a bit bit later in that sense.
5: And what? Tell us about the actions that the Finnish government has taken. What? what give us the, the 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 different things you've done to counter disinformation. What's the program?
2: 2014, what happened concretely was that we, we formed a network of authorities. This means like 30 authorities having common meetings uh, once a month. For example, we started common training. We started with training of, of 100 uh, civil servants, which is a pretty high number in a, in a country like ours. That was the first step. And then we've been trained, training maybe, uh, I would say, Several thousand, more than 10,000 uh, Finnish uh, uh, citizens, uh, including uh, media journalists and, and, and others. And in addition, of course, we, we made all this public uh, because the raising of awareness of, of, of citizens is, is, is always very important when we are talking about disinformation and misuse of, of, of information. So then you need to say that we have a problem and the authorities at least are trying to take the problem seriously.
4: And I'm right in thinking that in Finland, the, the trust in both the media and the transparency within the democracy is, is one of the highest, if not the highest, in the world. Yeah, right. So do you think that means that, that the Finns less susceptible to fake news and disinformation?
2: I'm sure that it it has something to do with the with the fact that we we are somehow resilient. Also, as you mentioned, uh, we in the press uh, freedom index, Finland is I think in in the second position or third position nowadays. But when we are we are uh, talking about. Finnish, Finns trust on media. I think we are, we are number one. So we trust our media. And of course, it, it, it also demands professionalism from the media.
5: And if you think about your citizens, the 10,000 or whatever it was that are being trained, how do they selected? What do they do? What happens at the end? Has it had an effect? Tell us about that.
2: Yeah, that's a very good question. It's only Let's say selected people in that sense. That of course we 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 need to have educated uh, population in the country. And when it comes to media literacy, for example, we don't start it at schools. We started already in 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 the kindergartens. Uh, it's in in the curricula in in that sense that everyone uh, somehow is affected by the fact that they they need to understand that that's be, be critical uh, can you talk
4: to us a little bit more about that so kids under seven the, there is something even at that age going on about uh, trust in in media can you tell us a bit more about that
2: <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, that's 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 something which is a bit uh, peculiar, but 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 nevertheless, I, I've even seen kids' programs in TV where we had this teddy bear uh, having his adventures and being critical on on the news. Uh, so we we are having our narrative uh, available for everyone that that you must be critical uh, daily. Uh, Day after day. So this, this is very, very interesting. But for the, for the kindergartens and for the schools in the curricula, there is a thing which is media literacy. Somehow, uh, we try to have an effect on, on, on children as well.
4: And can we talk a little bit about this this year? The government ran a public information campaign to counter disinformation in the parliamentary elections. Uh, can you tell us what this involved and, and what impact it had, and, and why you know why you felt the need to do it?
2: Yeah, we we had both both the national parliamentary elections uh, first in April and and in May there were the EU Parliament's elections. So we formed a task force. Uh, already summer 2018, uh, which consists of of, uh, various uh, authorities. They started the program, of course, this was made public, so sending a message to the larger public. And then we had training of the election officials even the parties, all the parties were participating. We were talking about informa- information influencing uh, disinformation. Uh, we had a med- media campaign in TV, in, in other media, uh, saying that we have the best elections in the world. Uh, that was the slogan, saying that we, we, we really... Have a robust thing. You you need, on, only things you need is a pen and a paper, uh, and, and 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 the box. So in in that in that sense, it's not that easy uh, to somehow from outside uh, to try have to ha- have an effect on the, on the result. But in the uh, let's say information sphere, uh, we needed to do something. But to be honest, uh, there wasn't too many too much mess around, so so I think we, we had uh, pretty peaceful elections both in, in national and also in the EU level. And, and finally, I just wanted
4: to ask you, what do you think a country like the UK can learn uh, from Finland's approach to tackling disinformation?
2: I would say the same thing that we, we demand here in Finland, there are three demands maybe. One is to demand openness or transparency of the administration. Uh, Finland, for example, we are number one in the uh, transparency index, but nevertheless, this is a thing that we, we need to need our, ourselves, that the administration would be more open and transparent. And the other one is, of course, journalism, media. We we need to have more professionalism in, in the media and in journalism. As I mentioned, we trust the media, but still... They need to do their work every day better and better. Uh, as I mentioned, the MH17, for example, in in Finnish media, I saw stories which were directly from the Kremlin uh, workbook. But but that's 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 another thing. I think uh, Finnish journalism has taken uh, serious steps forward. And the last thing. Uh, everyone should demand education. So it's the basic education uh, plus uh, some special things concerning the media literacy. Uh, so everyone should be day after day, every day, uh, again and again uh, trained uh, to tackle these problems. And in that sense, we, we, we can uh, take steps uh, to increase our resilience of the whole nation, maybe this could also also fit for for the UK.
4: Can, can we also add to that more stories about teddy bears being critical about what they read in the newspapers?
2: <laughs> yeah, I, I think that was that was very 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 good story. That's something that everyone should have. I
4: agree, uh, Vesa. Thank you so much for talking to
5: us.
2: Oh no problem.
5: Anytime. Well, look. I mean there is something important that's come up in the discussion which I, you know I can now reveal which is that the bacon sandwich was a deep fake.
8: <laughs> it,
5: it was didn't ever happen. You're I, ahead of your time. I, I never you wanted, were deep faked before want, Obama. I never wanted really to to say but you know because I just thought well no one's going to believe you. No one's going to believe me but trust in politicians yeah, was exactly. so
4: undermined. Exactly. What did you think of this discussion? Uh, I, I, you know as ever I found it very interesting. The the process of getting people to be able to spot what's real and fake. And the education is very interesting to me. We've all got those uncles who post insane stuff on Facebook as if it was fact. And uh, maybe Finland, maybe Finland have got it right. Maybe you start this in In kindergarten with with stories about teddy bears. Yeah. Um,
5: Spot the bot. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. I think that's, I think that's important. I I personally think that the tech companies do have a lot more they should be doing. I mean, this Elizabeth Warren thing where she posted an ad on Facebook saying Mark Zuckerberg had endorsed Trump, but basically then says it's not true, but she sort of dared Facebook to take it down or do something about it. They said, we're not going to do anything about it. She's in a ding dong with them about it. Um, You know, it doesn't seem unreasonable to say that if politicians or anyone has a kind of lies there's something tagged to it saying this has been checked by third party factories. it's not true but the one area that facebook are not applying that as i understand it is to politicians and i just don't understand the re- i mean what wh- why i mean you know it, 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 honestly as a politician you know you, you'd have a lot more anxiety if you know you, i'm sure for politicians for political advertising on um the internet if it was going to be tagged as untrue mm. Because that's like, you know, when well, he lied,
4: don't you think? Yeah, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, I suppose they are just extremely scared of looking like they have a political
5: stance. But I think maybe it dates back to the sort of sense of the, you know, isn't the best thing about the internet that it's sort of unregulated a libertarianism that's slightly gone quite problematic. I mean, it's not unreasonable. You know, is it when, you know they could get an independent organisation to do the fact-checking. But, but I think it'll be OK because uh, Nick Clegg's in charge of it now. <laughs> The, the the finland thing is
4: interesting as well just because the the transparency and trust in institutions yep. is so much yep. higher there yeah. and i think you know a, a probably a, a, an adjoining issue to this is how do you rebuild that trust
5: yeah. in our society i heard this really interesting thing the other day by somebody saying that trump wasn't trying to persuade people that what he said was true he was trying to persuade people that what everyone said was untrue uh and therefore you essentially couldn't trust anything and therefore you just had to go with your prejudices right and i thought that was a very interesting i thought it was a very very interesting point that we think it's about tr- sort of you know where he's told something that's untrue Isn't he going to be worried he's going to be caught out? But that is just totally missing the point.
3: Mm. Reasons to be
1: cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door.
4: Do let us know if you've got any thoughts on disinformation and fake news. I mean, we've... Spot the bot. Yeah, we... we... I mean, we would welcome any ideas as well as the conversations we've been having here on the podcast. We've been sitting with our head in our hands a little bit thinking about it and, you know, where this goes in the future. So any bright ideas, please, you can get in touch with us. All the ways, different ways, social media and so on, email of getting in touch with us are on our website, cheerfulpodcast.com. And people should sign up to our
5: newsletter to find out more of the background on what we've covered on today. And other shows.
4: looking very good, our newsletter, I think.
5: This comes from Matt, who uh, says, courgette
4: recipes. Hi, Jeff and Ed. Uh, A great recipe for using your courgettes is this lasagna from BBC Good Food. It's something I've started cooking recently in a bid to get more vegetarian meals into our diet. He then includes a link. Could we put that in the newsletter? Maybe. I mean, he does make it sound very appealing. Really? This recipe, yeah. I mean, we, we did, we had a bit of a thing going with the courgettes at the weekend, but I think this looks better. Uh, he says, can you please give a shout out to Ginny Mills for introducing me to the podcast?
5: Aw. Hello, Ginny Mills. This comes from Phil Smith. Uh, he says, I've got a great idea for a make your own sandwich. You're making this <laughs> up. You're
4: making it up. You're not reading a letter. Let it go. I just
5: thought it was fake (laughs) news. It's definitely that. Uh, Right. This actually comes from Pete Tomlin. Listening to the Extinction Rebellion episode of Cheerful Podcast, I had the realisation that up to about a year ago, whenever I think about the climate or nature, I get so depressed. Now, with XR and the school strikes, I'm not saying I'm all happy-clappy, but I'm a lot less pessimistic. Amazing the difference in the discussion within such a short space of time. I tend to agree with that, although I wasn't so keen on the protest on the Tube. Counterproductive,
4: really. I, I think so. Yeah. I, I think so. I think like, a lot of people within Extinction Rebellion would say the same thing. Yeah. Uh, and this on the Extinction Rebellion episode comes from Will, who says, I'm a listener from New Jersey. Wow. The Garden New Jersey. Uh, and I just finished this week 's episode on extinction rebellion civil disobedience I liked how your guests highlighted how much organizing work these sort of mass movements require in order to be successful however I was disappointed that you didn 't take a look back at Occupy Wall Street the movement from earlier this decade Good point. Uh, while income equality is now a central issue in the 2020 Democratic presidential debates occupy itself as a movement seems to have fizzled out was it too confrontational filled with too many anarchist groups trustees or something else it seems that XR is less closely connected with figures uh, from the Wco and Iraq war protests than occupy does the messenger change how the message is received I mean I don't know, I think you make the point there in, in the body of what you've written, Will, is that th- it's w- the, the issues that were raised by Occupy are the issues that have yeah. been talked about in the mainstream of the Democratic Kennedy. But I think,
5: I, think, I think he's right, isn't he, that Extinction Rebellion seems like they have a more thought-out strategy. Yeah. Do you think we should claim the word crusty? Do you think it can be sort of claimed and, and sort of re... Would you go full crusty? Mm. But is there a way you could sort of prefix it with something to make it sound nicer? Trusty crusty <laughs> That's good.
4: Uh, he adds. Uh, P.S. Where do I apply for a passport for the Jeffocracy? Where does he apply for a passport? I don't know. But we need to think about what colour the passports are going to be. Yeah. What's the design? Yeah. Maybe tie dye by the order of crusty. the by the order of the Jeffocracy.
9: Yeah.
3: Email us reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com Follow us on Twitter at Cheerful Podcasts or search for our Facebook page, Reasons to Be Cheerful Podcast.
4: Time for this week's Cheerful People, and our cheerful person uh, is the author of a new book, Chaos with Ed Miliband. It is Tom Noble, or should I say Roger Gammon? Hello. I tell I you, know. it's a
5: page turner. <laughs> <laughs>
4: I've never seen you so interested in anything. No,
5: exactly. It's, it is a t- I'll let you take You know, the we've had these various interview. reports and
4: uh, uh, t- weighty tomes and people talking pe- about these big ideas. And, yeah, as soon as it's uh, 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 caricatures of yourself... Yeah, you, you I'm struggling to... I've just opened
5: a page here. 14th of August 2015, this is while the Labour leadership contest is going on, and it has this sort of parallel universe. Today, Ed Miliband walked to the local park to feed some stale bread to the ducks, got pecked several times by an overly aggressive swan. I mean, it's uncanny. I've been watching you. Ed. You've been yeah. stalking him. You've been hacking his phone. I mean, it is uncanny. So, so let's
4: address this first of all. Roger Gammon, Nom de Plume. How did you come up with that?
9: Well, um, this book is kind of out at the same time as a certain former Prime Minister's book. And over the last few years, the term Gammon, I guess, has come to be used as a uh, disparaging term for uh, ruddy-faced, we-won-the-war Brexiteers, maybe. So it worked on that level. And then also Roger Gammon kind of ties back to a certain incident with that former Prime Minister involving a pig. Of course, of course. So it kind of worked on two levels. Um <laughs> Yeah. And who, who
4: are you Tom? I mean, What's the story behind you and the you know and how the book came about?
9: So I work for a publisher uh, called Orion and the book is published by by Orion and we were we all kind of saw the news about David Cameron's book being announced and we thought you know that's interesting um if he wants to tell his story, that's fair enough. But maybe we should offer something alternative and a bit more lighthearted. Ed's not listening
4: to you. He's just reading the book. <laughs> okay, <it's quite> fun.
5: <laughs> Today, Ed Miliband got asked for a selfie by a bloke in a local cafe. I was happy to oblige, despite the man calling him David four times. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that is your life.
4: So David Cameron... I mean, it actually happened to be on, on the street. <laughs> <laughs> oh so they announced David Cameron's publishing his
9: memoirs yeah. you in your publishing company think we thought you know we can take the piss a little bit Sorry, can I say you say piss yeah <laughs> alright good uh, yeah, we can take the I'd piss heard words bit. like that before definitely, definitely. he said good them. good we um, thought yeah you know we can do something here to kind of offer an alternative to readers who perhaps are not fans of David Cameron and find the idea of him publishing his memoirs slightly uh, you know not to their taste we can offer something different that's a bit more light hearted a bit more you know Something a bit more fun, and that shows a maybe a kinder side to politics and something a bit more engaging in that way.
4: And this is one of, one of those books that people are going to be out in November, December shopping. They're going to see it on the counter That's, in the bookshop. Yeah, and think, hopefully. Oh, yeah this this is this is the one That's for my it. husband. Or this is one you've for you've obviously or
5: like or stalked me because you're like <laughs> you know I like skeletrics. Yeah, you know that I've made jokes about having a man bun. <laughs>
9: Well, you know, we we wanted to make
5: it um, like, you know, this is like scary. This is like Mark Zuckerberg. Um, uh, Wow. Anyway. Although i was so disappointed there was nothing about the podcast in the book. It's always got to come back to you, doesn't it? Yes. Okay, this one isn't about you, (laughs) honestly. If it does well, there
9: could be a sequel. And it's what I've
4: done to keep you busy these last few years since 2015. That is true.
5: That is true. Um, It is funny. Anyway, keep going with your interview, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> you keep going, read, reading your book. Yeah.
4: So, so you you, you work in a publisher's. You've never yes, done anything yeah, yeah. like this before. It's Not wasn't really. A, um, a Twitter account. Who did the illustrations?
9: That's a guy we've worked with a few times before called Adam, who's great. So we worked together on the kind of the look of the book and the, the illustrations. What's Adam's surname? We should give him- Adam Rushton. Adam Rushton. He gets yep. some, uh, but his credit is on the book as Milligan. That's the, the name he wanted to be. I there. see. But yeah, he he was fantastic. He was great to work with, and I think he captured you quite well i hope you feel the same do you
5: feel, in in your experience head because obviously a lot of, ate four uh, bananas Jesus back to back Christ. then felt a little bit sick for an hour or so <laughs> sounds like it's
4: sounds very like, close to the truth yeah, um, close to the moon. as somebody who's been caricatured a lot by cartoonists over the years who does you best do you think oh god i don't know do think this milligan's
5: probably up no, there, but i think then. this is relatively complimentary actually don't you think yeah yeah good that's what we wanted. No. <laughs> no i mean the caricature is relatively complimentary so uh, performed his annual sock draw audit four <laughs> pairs successfully rematched how do you know <laughs> seven sorry singles binned and one damaged walking sock darned back to full fitness
9: <laughs> yeah it's a uh, some of them were once we'd got a few scenarios and we kind of got this style I think it it was quite easy to do it was it was a lot of fun to come up with the ideas um some are quite ridiculous some are a bit more surreal some are just really mundane it was just trying to show what what this kind of chaos could have been,,
4: and you sort of juxtapose each page juxtaposes what 's going on in the real world yes. in the
9: news with whats uh, what, yeah. what you imagine to be going on so, in so Ed's yeah, life, which we, as it turns out is very close to the truth <laughs> yeah, we just went right back to david Cameron 's famous tweet about chaos with Ed Miliband and thought, well, what would that chaos have been compared to what has actually been happening because obviously there 's been terrible things happening every day, sometimes several times a day, so it was quite there's plenty of material there to work with I mean, it's um, not
5: gone well since has it really for the country no i, I think, think it's fair to say I, think... I mean how how i mean let's be honest how bad could it have been under me <laughs> compared to this? i mean it would have i mean i've got it's a pretty low bar isn't it I've said to you before,
4: though, I mean, I'm saying it would be better, but if if you'd become prime minister, yeah. here's what would have happened. You would have done a good job, but some minister in your cabinet would have done something embarrassing. It would have caused a scandal at some point. There'd be something with data. So, you know, there's, there's always something, and you would have been tarnished a little bit. As it is, you're this golden boy in people's minds. It's this <laughs> prime ministership that, compared to what has happened in real life,
5: is is golden. It's the Bobby Kennedy effect. It's not so great for the country, though, is it? No, really? it's not. But I'm just trying to make you feel better. Right? Okay. I mean, somebody did tweet the other day. I thought was quite, you know, um, uh, sort of telling. They said something like, "I'm old enough to remember when it was controversial that the chancellor put a tax
9: on pasties." <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
4: Any interest in the in the movie rights to this book yet?
9: Well, I mean, oh. that would be uh, quite something. Who's
4: going like to play him? in the movies? You must have given this some thought. Before. Wallace
5: <laughs> Ray Romano. Do you remember Ray Oh yeah. Yes, from Everybody I Loves Raymond. I once confused for Ray Romano on an aeroplane But a stewardess. <laughs> she said, I know who you are. And I said, really? She said, yeah, you're Ray Romano from everyone. Lo- Everybody Loves Raymond. We should. I do, said, no, I'm really not. We should do one week a list of all the people that people have mistaken you for. It's a long list. Harry Redknapp. <sighs> yes, I know. In my constituency, I know that is really weird. I mean, weird. that
9: is quite confusing. I know, it's like...
5: Nick Clegg on a number of occasions. Nick Clegg on a number of occasions. Fear Nigel Farage once. Really? Yeah. I think that is somebody
4: winding you up. Do you think? Yeah, definitely. Maybe. Uh so so Tom the book is the book is out now. The book is out
9: now, yeah. Um ideal Christmas gift hopefully. Um but yeah, it's it's out and people seem to be liking it and I'm just relieved that Ed likes it. Yeah, I definitely. Think
5: I think this qualifies as an endorsement, does it? No, Ash? no, it definitely. It definitely I mean it's uncanny. It is uncanny. Uncannily accurate. Uh, Tom Noble, author of Chaos with Ed Miliband. Thanks for Suffered so minor grazes and two <laughs> he bruised, bruised knees after falling off his unicycle. <laughs> Nothing that a generous smear of antiseptic can't fix. <laughs> Tom, <laughs> thanks for so coming. Thank so you very much, guys. Cheers.
3: Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd.
4: We are in the outro. And I have something for the outro. This, this comes from Lynn Davis, who says, um, You remember, we said get in touch. With uh, what Edward looked like With lovely blonde ringlets oh, I can't even remember how this came up in conversation I did have blonde ringlets when I was a child Right And Lynn says uh, This is from Lynn from Lynn Davis Design She says your Millie blonde is
5: attached And there we have a picture of you Yeah That's I mean, more like a wig isn't it That's more like a judicial wig
4: well, may, maybe your wife, who is, of course, yeah. a judge, she could get you one of those these wigs. You I mean, could I try. I'm very on grateful size. to Lynn Davis. I think it looks good. I'll take it
5: under advisement. You've never been tempted to dye your hair. What do you mean? Because I'm going grey. Going is a sort of general term. Before I dye it like a badger, <laughs> calm it down a bit. Uh... uh what
4: um you, you've never been tempted i think it's too late isn't it i think if you've gone as grey as like, now, if, I, if, yeah. if i was to turn up yeah with damien lewis style red hair next yeah. week I, I don't think
5: you'd approve no it's true right i'd like to thank sander van der linden visa hakenen uh, and samantha bradshaw how was that it, it was fine visa hakenen that and was good.
4: He, I don't, I'm not even sure if that's right. And thanks to Tom Noble for keeping you so entertained with the, with his book Chaos with Ed Miliband. And thanks
5: to the electorate for having avoided that fate. <laughs>
4: <laughs> that was a thanks through gritted teeth. <laughs> Emma Caution produces our podcast with research and backup from Joel Pierce and Joe Kenyon. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. James Deacon made The Little Eye dance. The music was by Ed Seed. And the artwork wasn't designed by Emily Power. But it was designed by Henry Cole. He's been a deep fake. He's been a trusty crusty. And these have been reasons to be cheerful.
8: Small details are big surfaces.